Season 3 of LSHB's Weird Era podcast. Today we're talking to Bud Smith. Bud Smith works heavy construction in New Jersey. His story Violets appeared in the Paris Review. He released his debut novel this year titled Teenager. Cody Raleigh Green is stuck in juvie. Tala Teal Cartwell's Carticelli is packing her bags for Rome on the orders of her parents, who want her as far from Cody as possible. But teenage love is too strong a force for the obstacles of reality. And the highway beckons. Leaving their abusive past behind them in Jersey, Cody and Teal set off on a cross-country road trip, equal parts self-destruction and self-discovery, making their way, one stolen car at a time, toward bigger, wider, bluer skies. Along the road, of course, there's time to stop at Graceland, classic diners, a fairground that smells of pony shit and kettle corn, and time for run-ins with outsized personalities like the reincarnated Grand Canyon tour guide Dead Bob and the spurious Montana rancher Bill Gold. On their heels, all the while, is Teal's brother, Neil Carditelli, who's abandoned his post in the Navy to rescue the sister he left behind. But does she really need saving? These all-too-American tropes find new expression in Bud Smith's own freewheeling prose and in Ray Bullery's original illustration, filling teenager with humor, poetry, and a joy that's palpable in every unforgettable sentence. Hi, Bud. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um... My first thought in reading a lot of your prose, but something that's particularly palpable in Teenager is this sort of youthful, naive, and childlike language that you utilize. You know, it's kind of reminiscent of a kind of American style that feels nostalgic in our contemporary setting of, of I would say, literature. Um, you know, an obvious reference would be something like J.D. Salinger. Um, I'm wondering what draws you to this rhetoric, and, and what do you think the style of voice accomplishes in fiction? Well... I'm not. I'm not sure. I th- I think about that stuff too much. I guess I'm just kind of writing how people talk in real life around me, maybe on construction sites and stuff. It's like a lot. A lot of um, you know, simple language to to tell some kind of sweeping anecdotal story, and um, and yeah, it do- it is reminiscent of something like Salinger. I just reread nine stories. Well, I, honestly, I read nine stories for the first time, and I was. That was amazing. Um, I've I've read Catcher in the Rye as a kid a, a few times in that first person voice, and I don't know. It's just incredible to me, like the command of that that narrative, the Holden Caulfield stuff, just blows me away. And that probably was some influence for sure on writing this book from the point of view of Cody and Teal, just like. Like you described it perfect, like naive. You know, they're not stupid. They just don't have experience yet, and they're they're seeing things wide-eyed for the first time. So, um, really, so much of it was just trying to capture the energy of somebody seeing their country and and you know experiencing these things fresh and new. And um, yeah, I think that ref- that is captured in the language in a way, but. Um, but I can't say how much of it I really, I really th- I planned out much. It was just trying to keep the energy and excitement high, and um, and just you know, seeing things just really, really ro- through rose-tinted len- lens. Let's say, so maybe that is that maybe that is a call back to how Americans viewed their country more in the um, the fifties and sixties and 
yeah, it comes from that, I guess. I guess you're right. Um, your partner, Ray Buleri, participated in the making of this book with accompanied illustrations. Can you talk a bit about how that came about and what working on that process together looked like? Sure. So when I found out that Vintage was going to acquire the book, I was, first of all, I was really surprised. I was like, wow, that's great. <laughs> and I, I got two two requests from the acquiring editor. I didn't know him yet. I didn't know anything about him. But the first thought was, are you willing to edit this? And I was like, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's a dream. You know, <laughs> it's always the dream to like work with a, a pro editor on something and develop it and, and work it. And I was, yes, of course. And the second question was, would I, would I be open to the, his idea of having illustrations in the book? And I got to be honest, uh, at first I was kind of like, fuck, this is where they're going to ruin this thing. You know, right, right. they're just, they're going to stick a bunch of like goofy little sketches in here. And, and I thought I would get, um, you know, a bunch of, uh, samples from illustrators that maybe vintage has or knows or uses. And, uh, so I, I was just, I just said, yes, sure. Let's see what happens. You know, let's sign the contract and figure it out. You know, always figuring I could, I could, I didn't want to squirrel my way out of editing it. But I probably could squirrel my way out of, you know, I didn't have to work with an illustrator if it, if it wasn't perfect. And so the next thing that happened was um, my agent, Mike Mangiello, he mailed the editor a copy of Dust Bunny City. that He had it at his house and he just, um, he reached out to the guy and mailed him a copy. So Todd Bortnovitz got this book and it just happened to have a bunch of illustrations from um, me and Ray. Ray illustrated it and it's poetry and little short stories about our neighborhood in the city we lived in, New York City. And the guy was like, wow, this is the illustrator. This this is, this is person should team back up with Bud. And I think Mangiello was like, it's his wife, actually. So mm -hmm. then it, be it became a home arts and crafts project. You know, I heard from Ray. She was like, oh, they say I'm going to do another book with, I'm like, who, who said what? And Mangiello had reached out to her and I heard about it and I was instantly, then I was on board with, you know, completely on board with the idea of having these drawings because I feel like there was no way to mess it up if we were working on it together with, you know, an open heart and make the, make the thing just fun and, and wild. And it was wonderful. Um, you know, she would show me her drafts of her drawings and she would say, what do you think of this one and, and this one? And we'd kind of go through them all. and. I would say, oh, wow, this one's great. You know, do another couple drafts of something like this. And she was telling me the same thing about the, the book. I would read her the book and she would say, ah, chapter six sucks. You need to <laughs> retype that one a few more times. So we did that to each other with the writing and also with the illustrations. So it went like that. And the other great thing was, you know, doing the book has an interesting layout. I think it kind of has like... Um, the illustrations are, are put in there in like unique and strange places where it kind of more pro approaches like an art object rather than just a regular old novel on the shelf, you know? And um, I was really attracted to that idea because that's like with Dust, Dust Bunny City, that's something we really try to do. So we did it, I think, to even greater effect in Teenager and the initial layout and design um, we did ourselves and it looks pretty much exactly what wound up being redone by the professional layout, you know, people at Vintage, but it was just from a PDF that me and Ray laid out in uh, Pages for Mac, which is just you know Microsoft Word for uh, Mac, and uh, yeah, so they just were like, 
go crazy with it, go wild with it. And really, I, if there was zero pushback on anything, art-wise, design-wise. It is a particularly beautiful book, I, I feel. Um, I really adore the cover, I adore the colors, and I, I do think that the, the imagery is such a beautiful, almost, again, naive-like companion to the narrative voice. Um, it's sort of, you know, it has these like very sketch-like feel about them. And I don't know, I really enjoyed them. Yeah, I think there's something, you know, to return again to the, the naive feeling. It's like, um, you know, if you can just see things without cynicism, even though you should have it, it I think it, you really, it becomes like an open hand rather than a closed fist way of telling a story. And obviously it's not always going to work for the content. But I thought mm -hmm. of these characters who hadn't been brought up with parents that kind of showed, they hadn't been brought up at all by parents who showed them the right way to function. Um, and they both, neither of them really had peers or friends where they could kind of be in like a contemporary setting with music and, you know, books and movies. Like Cody's obsessed with like Don Quixote and he has this like dream of joining the military like he could get in World War II when it mattered or something. But now it's, you know, it's 2002, like the military's completely different. There's, it's, America's completely different than the romanticized version of it. And it's the same thing with Teal. You know, she has this, these incredibly abusive parents. Um, the, mu the only music in the house is Elvis Presley. So she is still obsessed with Elvis and harbors the, the you know, hopeful belief that Elvis is her real biological father because her mother has a bunch of love letters from the man. <laughs> and uh, yeah, not naive, naive is the word, lacking experience, but they've been held down under people's thumbs and they never had somebody show them what was possible in, uh, in life. So the novel opens up with mom and dad getting shot and uh, now these two kids can kind of go out and try to find their own way. It's funny that you mention um, cynicism because, you know, it's right there in the book copy from farming to Elvis to the military to driving through the literal American desert. You know, this book is America. So I guess my question is, what to you feels the most American about this book? It's probably that American dream, pretending everything's okay, ignoring all the problems and just pushing on, um, not facing reality, living kind of a halfway a cartoon life where you hardly notice what a, what a nightmare it is or you have a willing uh, suspension of belief uh, about what's going on around you mm -hmm. and buying into a myth that was never really there to begin with. Uh, you watch enough, Cody's watched enough, you know, Westerns where he's seen the, the cowboy life and, and he doesn't really understand that you know, the cowboys and the black hats who are the bad guys and the cowboys and the white hats are the good guys. It's just, here's some people off on a strange adventure. Um, and Teal, it's kind of the same way. She's just, she, in the beginning of the book, she's going to get on a plane to Rome. And I feel like it's such a bittersweet moment where she's about to be sent away and this kid shows up and pulls her back into this broken myth of the place. As, and they both know they're doomed, you know. Maybe her life could could have changed for the better, but there's this there's this moment where she's pulled back into like the fractured, you know, walking daydream 
of the, of this country and how it's misunderstood by a lot of its citizens. And uh, you just have once you pass the point of no return, you can you can decide two paths. You can be completely broken and cynical by it, or I think you can you can just be full of some kind of wonderment, almost like a drugged wonderment of your own life to try to do what you can before something stops your heart from beating, you know? I mean, you sort of suggest that, okay, so I guess my question to you is really like, what are your thoughts on American idealism? Because you've said it yourself, there was, there's this idea of, um, the the country's own people misunderstanding the point of the country itself is is that fair to fair to say of course it is yeah i think the you know um this this country is is founded on genocide complete genocide and right. whenever we, whenever we talk about it you know it's kind of oh yeah but you know everybody else was doing it we were just the last ones to do it or something you know, mm-hmm. and I guess that's the story of all civilizations. If you go back far enough, it's a story of genocide and war and people enslaved and land stolen. And we just happen to be in America, one of the last places to do it, where it was for sure <laughs> not uh, not cool <laughs> anymore. You know, so we we you have all that looming over all of our history in this country as one of the last founded you know places in this in this world refounded really mm-hmm. so i mean you know all that guilt all that guilt and uh you know you can look at it and you can you can talk about it for what it actually is or you can just kind of you know make excuses so i think this this book wrestles with with that in an understated way um that manifest destiny we're we're going from the east coast of this country to the west coast of the country and there's a reason why we're headed west the whole time. So, so you, I mean, you don't have any idealism about the American dream at all? I have idealism about human life. I mm-hmm. think anyone in any country wants to live a a, a personal, happy life. And, and mm-hmm. they want to find balance with working as little as they can, finding the most joy they can, finding someone who loves them, legitimately loves them, um, happy relationships sexually emotionally uh, intellectually and i think that's the dream of the earth the all the people on this planet um to to kind of put a spotlight just saying like the, the american dream i don't think ever really existed i think it's just another marketing ploy it's a thing you kind of say as propaganda in the face of probably particularly the cold war i mm-hmm. think that's when we started talking about the american dream it's just in opposition to the you know the communist dream when we're when we're the american you know thing of reaching out and all these little wars that we perpetrated to kind of keep up in in almost not not even truthful at all just reasons to you know acquire places with oil or you know different things we did that it's to me just a propaganda thing, the American dream. I know I never really understood what that would really mean, other than you're trying to live a free and happy life, and I don't think that is anywhere exclusive to this country. And I don't rate America over any other place in the world, really. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just people, if they can find a way 
to find a, a personal happiness wherever they live, any country, any town. Um, if they could find happiness in their own bedroom and kitchen and living room, mm-hmm. that's probably the way to do it. At the same time, though, this book really does kind of read like a love letter to the country. I mean, I think in particular the the sort of prose that, you know, beautifully captures literally like American landscape, um, especially with this kind of a book where the two characters are literally on the road and driving through the mountains and the desert. Um, and there's almost um, there's almost a, a certain kind of beauty that I feel like is attached to the country in reading this book. Um, can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I think if you really went anywhere in the world, you could find sweeping and beautiful landscapes and you could find interesting magnetic people and you could write something very similar to this book about any other country in the world you just have to be from there it has to be a personal thing that you you know a love-hate relationship with your country and the citizens of your country you share it with is i think healthy and normal and Mm -hmm. this is my attempt to dissect my own country's history and hopefully it's it's present day up up to a certain point. I think the novel probably realistically is set around 2002, um, if you really kind of look at some of the details. And when I wrote it, when I began writing some of this, it was travel logs of of cross-country trips I had taken when I was 19, 20, 21, 22. And never really interested in writing down nonfiction travel logs of my you know, and I think it was interesting enough. So eventually, it, a lot of those stories and places and experiences got given to Cody and Teal, and uh, some of it to Neil, her brother. One segment that really struck me was um, Cody walked around the back of the pharmacy, uh, a gravel lot. He saw the clerk's car, a gray Toyota Corolla with a coexist bumper sticker. And it made me think about how I was you know, a couple years ago, uh, traveling through the West Coast of America, and it was around the sort of Clinton and Sanders election, and and the various bumper stickers I saw all over, all over, you know, the various cities I, w- I was in, and the way the people felt the need to label themselves so clearly to the public in a way that kind of struck me, I guess, from my own experience living in Montreal. Um, and I guess I'm wondering how much of the American population do you think would have a coexist bumper sticker on it. You know, I don't need a specific number or anything, just a generalist assessment. Do you do you feel like you, you live in a land where most of the people want to coexist? I think it's probably 50-50. I think you hear a lot more negativity than is really out here. Um, America is much more rural than we kind of want to really think about. It's like as soon as you get a half an hour away from a major city, you're, I think as soon as you get away from a major city, you're actually in America, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like when I'm in New York City, I don't really feel particularly, and I live in Jersey City, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's particularly American at all. It's, it's so blended and it's such a worldly part of this country. It's almost just like a little, a bubble. But I do love getting away from where I live and getting out and, you know, many different kinds of rural areas. Uh, you're talking about the part where they're down there in Tennessee, and mm-hmm. I was thinking about my friend who worked in a really isolated town called Woodland, North Carolina. And it had a population of, I believe, 80 people were in the town at the time. And the pharmacy was in the town. And they had one police officer. And he quit. 
So then they had no police officer. And the closest uh, law enforcement was at least a half an hour away. And when I went down to visit Woodland and when I went to, um, went to this pharmacy where my friend worked, um, you would still see those, those cars around, those people around, you know, liberal people, hippie people. Um, you could tell they wanted to be artists. You could tell they were artists. They're still always out there and around. And it's not just that, you know, you get to like a more isolated area in a farm, a farm area in America that those people aren't there. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. that they're, they're, the volume on, on, on them is, is turned down a little bit because the volume is, is turned up a little louder on the, uh, you know, Toby Keith blasting country music, big pickup truck people. But mm-hmm. Americans, I believe, are pretty balanced across, across the whole country. I've been around a lot. I mean... You know, I don't think it's so much particularly like the influence of culture anymore, hardly, because we have the internet. So people mm-hmm. people can just see what every, what's going on, a click of a button, and they can choose to not look or to look at certain things, and the algorithm shows you whatever. But I think those people who are, uh, you know, maybe more bleeding heart and care and have compassion, they're they're just as balanced as... The people who who say you know don't tread on me and you know you take my guns out of my cold dead hands <laughs> they're out there these people are all they're all they're all out there mixed in and living together with much less friction than we see on new on the news that's another propaganda you turn on this these news stations and you see yeah just the other day I'll give you an example I was at work and um, guy I really like from um, a rural part of New Jersey. He, he, he commutes an hour and a half to, to the refinery where I'm working right now in North Jersey. And he was like, Smitty, you still uh, living up there in that city? And he starts telling me about all the terrible crime and all these things that are going on in the city. And I'm like, I've lived here for 18 years. I've never, I've never seen anything. <laughs> I've never seen, I don't, I don't even know anyone who's gotten mugged. Um, <laughs> I've I've walked home at like three thirty in the morning through, you know, what would could be considered by some people bad neighborhoods, and I've just never had a problem up here. But you turn on that Fox Five News, and the thing's on fire right now. You know, mm-hmm. somehow there's it, it's it's Sodom and Gomorrah or worse, and I think there's just a constant fear mongering, um, and that just drives raider you know raidership viewership. I don't believe it. Cody very blatantly lacks a father figure in his life. You know, I'm thinking of a segment where his suicidal mother leaves a note uh, with the following five sentences. Uh, One, I wish you luck. Two, I'm ready to die. Three, your father was a bull rider traveling with a roadie and I didn't know his name. Four, we spent only one night together and I was treated like a bull. Five, goodbye. If there is a heaven, I'll see you there. What do you think of the role of the father figure? Because in this book, Teal, you know, your female narrator has a horrible and abusive father, but a father figure nonetheless. She almost suffers from actually having one, whereas Cody has no father and a sort of traumatic past and suffers from a lack. And so I guess this is a question I think mostly about the role of patriarchy. And if you think there's anything in the idea of patriarchy that could benefit society you know the maybe the idea of men forming intimate bonds with other men for instance 
or what you were interested in exploring when it came to Cody as a teenage boy, you know, growing up into a man? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's all right there, exactly in the book. It's, it's a very, the book really kind of, in my eyes, is being hypercritical of men who don't do a good job raising their children, uh, men who do not do a good job governing their people. Um, most of the men, if not all the men in the book, are on some kind of misguided, foolish crusade where they kind of don't understand their own lives and they're, I'm not saying bumbling around, but maybe they, they finally got somewhere, they got to some place that they thought was going to be idyllic and then it wasn't what they thought it would be. And there in the aftermath of that, they have to figure out where they stand in that. And uh, yeah, I do think that this book is a criticism of, you know, men in general not have not doing a very, a very good job. Um, when I say a criticism of the, of the country, yeah, it's pretty much a criticism of the men, you know, who founded this country and who set up all the different ways and all the different myths of this country. Um, yeah, I don't know really what to say more than that. Are they not are they not doing a good job at being men or are they not doing a good job at life? Uh, both. Right. I mean, there's a whole lot of misunderstandings in this book and I, I usually um I usually don't get too excited when I'm just reading something where it's like two people don't understand each other and they could never communicate. So this like that's what I was saying before about Let's get rid of cynicism, and yeah, maybe this is written in more of a um, a naive, slightly childlike way. Um, the way the you know the worldview is is built and fantasies and delusions and all that. No one's beaten down by life yet who we're spending much time with, even though they should be. Uh, they're kind of like in defiance of of completely being a crumbled person. And I don't know how often you know you're gonna see that in reality i think most people who had gone through what cody went through and what teal had gone through before this book even started they they're probably going to be quieter and more disassociated with you know telling their uh truth so to speak or whatever but um but yeah i sort of want to talk about love and and you know, I feel like love in this book is associated, or maybe not in this book, just generally speaking, is can if we to gender it is would be a, more of a feminine concept, which you know, of course, is not. It's absurd, but but I suppose it has to do with this idea that love is like this empathetic, light, vulnerable, you know, joyous force, um, and then so much of violence and aggression is actually what's contributed to masculinity. But you know, in this book here, we have this kid completely encumbered in the challenges of masculinity, Cody, and then he gets completely sm smitten, softened by his love for a girl, Teal. And there's a segment in the book, early in the book, where Cody talks to a priest asking for some guidance. Um, the priest says, "You haven't lost every. You have just like you were pointing out. The priest says you haven't lost everything you ever cared about. You're too young to have, too inexperienced. You've got to get yourself out there in the game." What game? asks Cody. Love says the priest. Cody asks again that I should just love somebody. Priest says, "Whoever you can." And just knowing you and and, and knowing your personality, this just seems like. Bud Smith advice <laughs> directly. Um, is that is that a correct read? Is this advice Bud Smith approved and and why or why not? Well, yeah, you know, you talk about 
there being um you know shitty men or underdeveloped men in the book and um that's true but you know every once in a while you're gonna if you talk to enough people uh cody happens to talk to this priest who has you know i'm sh- my whole thing is if you had spent more time with the priest you you'd find out that you know his balanced person balancing him out no one's no one's a saint and obviously no one's mm-hmm. a sinner completely everybody's complex and if you spend enough time with him you figure all that shit out but this guy yeah he kind of he kind of shares my um a little bit of my worldview. I'm very, I try to forgive everybody. I have horrible first impressions of people and I hate people at first. <laughs> and I know that about myself and I just like, you know, I, I kind of like, no, no, I have to kind of see, some, hang out with somebody a couple times, mostly talking about in person. Online, mm-hmm. it's even worse. But in person, <laughs> you know, maybe my first impressions of people are usually right. But if I'm around them a couple times, I can figure out that almost every single person I've ever met you know if, if you actually get to know them they are worth they are worth your your effort and your time it's just a matter of like getting out of your own way with with finding like the things that are most interesting about people and finding the ways to love most people and uh, and yeah my preconceived notions destroy a lot of that initially and I, but I've lived long enough that I just know that so I'm always you know trying to trying to give those people more of a chance to reveal themselves to me and just showing up for that. That's all I can really say to people who are like, you know, and it happens all the time with, um, especially prejudiced about people who are from other parts of the country. happens all the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you know, this guy's from, these people are, like you mentioned, the way you were saying it earlier with like wondering of like, are there people with coexist stickers in Texas or whatever? Of course there Mm -hmm. are. Mm-hmm. If you actually get down to different parts of this country or whatever country you're from and really just talk to people, people are people wherever they're from. And uh, most of them can can teach you something pretty amazing about yourself if you just, you know, tough it out a little bit. We also see patriarchal manifestations in Teal's brother, Neil. Um, he performs his masculinity, you know, with his role in the military and as a sort of substitute father figure for Teal. Um, he spends the book competing with Cody over the love of Teal. Um, and I think a lot about your real life work in construction, which feels like often, if not always, such a specifically masculine environment. Um, it, how much of that experience has informed um, your reading of masculinity? Well, the longer you work construction and the longer you're around guys, if you if, you know, who do that kind of work and, and, you know, you get past that initial phase of, uh, you know, the first or second or third time of working together, you realize that it's all peacocking at first. It's all mm-hmm. just, you know, showing a certain face, a certain stoic side. And then literally everybody's a goofball. Everybody is just making mistakes and we laugh at each other and um it's a lot less masculine than people from the outside really think it is um it's a lot of humble people admitting when they've messed up and destroyed something and just um i don't probably think it's much different than any other work site um in construction or an office setting it's just that i happen to work in a labor union so all of the um all the egos kind of removed from it because most of the time people are on the job because they've gotten sent there from the union hall and they know they're only there temporarily 
and there's no um you know backstabbing and and all that stuff because you know you know what your job is and everyone's an equal we're all getting paid the exact same amount of money on, on an hourly wage mm-hmm. and some jobs i'll get there and the person who i worked with last time who had the worst the worst job on the site and they were doing the, the really dirty just it would seem like the low man on the totem pole let's say now they're the foreman and they're getting the paper, they got the blueprints and they've getting the permits. And um, we all take turns in getting sent out for jobs, running jobs and um, being there for each other. And it's a lot less brutally um, masculine than you would think from the outside. Believe it or not. I believe it. I believe it very much. Um, I also felt like there was in a bit of an infantilization of Teal a bit. I mean, of Cody too, but particularly with regards to Teal, I can see how that might have been intentional. There's kind of an obvious damsel in distress theme to the story, pulling straight from, you know, like a fable, um, you know, format. Why did you pull from that theme? Or I guess I'm asking why it had to be about Cody saving Teal. Well, I always, I always think about people who are trying to save somebody and then they're wrong about it the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're saving somebody who probably didn't really need saving at all, or they had just about figured it out themselves, and they kind of swoop in and fuck it all up. Um, and I think, yeah, probably some of the miss, some of the reading of her seeming like an infant in the beginning of the book, probably mostly is what you're. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but she's a little bit more reserved and quieter and. I felt she was in shock for the. It does this novel doesn't cover a whole lot of time. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We're probably like maybe a week and a half, two weeks before we get to we get to the ranch, and then by mm-hmm. the ranch, I kind of feel like the shock of her parents both being murdered uh, at point blank range in her family home probably mm-hmm. had worn off, and I think you start to see Teal really start to come into her own uh, at that point, and. Um, on initial drafts when I wrote the novel, she doesn't say a whole lot. And it was from his point of view, and she doesn't say a whole lot. And um, I had an, an early editor who was like, do these people even really like each other? Because Teal had been like so quiet, and you know she wouldn't say a whole lot. But And, and especially from Cody's point of view, he's too kind of um, naive is the word again, to realize like what shock this person has gone through, that whatever like vivacious character character they could be uh, certainly I'd be stunted until they finally just decide almost become like suicidal in, in that in this feeling like well you know my life's pretty much over and now I can just be a little wilder and open because literally nothing matters and yeah there's love um, I do love my boyfriend despite the fact that you know he shot my parents but <laughs> maybe that was a nice thing he did for me but he did he have to do that? You know, it's it's really complicated, I thought. And um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know. Um, what's hilarious about being American? <laughs> well, what's hilarious about being alive and being human? I think all the time um, it's just humiliating to be alive. Uh, every single one of us, every time we... It's endless. It's endlessly humiliating to be alive. Um, and I, I guess the particular things about being American that are humiliating. Wait, why is it endlessly humiliating to be well, alive? Do you, do you, don't you feel a little humiliated every day? 
I certainly do. <laughs> I just feel like every it's just constant clowning around um, and, and shit happening where I'm like, I'm just the universe's cosmic punchline, you know? <laughs> and I just try to make the best of it and obviously, you know, laugh along with it because I feel like that's all you can really do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really, I'm not a person, with, you know, stricken with depression. No. I, I just have a kind of, uh, opti- I'm optimistic to a fault, I would describe myself. But what's what's embarrassing about being American, I think is pretty much what's embarrassing about living in any other country on this globe, honestly. Mm -hmm. It's just, you have to get up every day and you have to go and humiliate yourself for a paycheck. (laughs) And that is everybody I know. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of people want to talk to me about, you know, what's it like being a working writer and you you work construction and this it's like this special thing or whatever, but it's like literally every every artist, let alone every writer I know, Mm-hmm. Um, other than maybe one or two who have, you know, family fortunes, they are all of them working probably harder than me because they, they're not in labor unions and they're not, you know, they're working freelancing gigs and adjuncting and just rushing around while raising families, which I'm not doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how they do it. So when people talk to me about like, you know, what's up with how do you work construction and write i'm like give me a break there's everyone everyone is working this hard if not harder than me and it's just uh it's like that propaganda thing i was saying about uh, the american dream we're living you know through the uh hype market cycle of bud smith's new book you know (laughs) and that's pretty much you know what it comes down to does a good book need adventure yeah i think so um, a lot of my favorite books don't seem like they have it, like um, Thomas Bernard, something like The Loser by Thomas Bernard, mm-hmm. where it's just him. I don't know if you've read that, but it's like he's complaining uh, complaining about his friend who committed suicide, and he's a piano virtuoso, and he squandered his um, his virtuosity in the eyes of this narrator. And most of the book, he's just sitting, I feel like he's sitting in a pub and he's on his way to the friend's house, which is not too far from the pub. So he has like a short walk, but the whole time it's just, he's having a, um, a mental and emotional adventure, criticizing brutally this friend. And uh, I guess sometimes we think of adventures tied to actionable plot. And I think that's, um, that's nice when it happens, but for me, it has to be tied closely with an adventure of the emotional life too you know the intellectual emotional and actionable life it that's how the greatest pieces of art that have moved me have all been balanced and we're kind of um whatever the style is we're going on some kind of strange journey of the the heart the mind and also of the arms and legs in our little spacesuit suit containing the brain out into whatever atmosphere is surrounding us Thank you, bud. This was great. Um, Listeners, you can pick up a copy of Teenager on the Weird Era shelf at Library St. Henry Books. um, And I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you again. Thank you, Shruti.